All right. Uh, so we have a lot of information to cover here in about an hour and a half. Um, if you have a question, we can't uh, get to you because uh, we're kind of strapped for time. Uh, our contact information is at the end of this uh, uh, presentation. So don't hesitate to shoot us an email. Um, a little bit about me and uh, my companies. Uh, my wife and I, we own a superior inspection. Um, we are a multi-inspector company in Northwest Arkansas and Southwest Missouri. Through our experiences in the inspection industry has led us to start uh, an independent specialty trade school called TradeX University. We want to provide a one-stop shop for contractors to get regional, comprehensive, hands-on specialty trade education at the lowest price. So with that said, um, let's go. So in my experiences, uh, the pillars the pillars of a, of a new construction home, everything that we're going to be kind of talking and referencing about today is in reference to new construction, residential slab, um, you know, your standard uh, 1,500, 2,000 square foot home. There's lots of variations, obviously, that, um, uh, that are in home uh, construction, but uh, just for the purposes of this presentation um, uh, with the amount of information that we were trying to present, uh, that's kind of the, the baseline that we're trying to stick with. So um, so with that, uh, we are, there are so many assumptions and misinformation um, by all trades, all people involved in real estate, uh, that we wanted to help elevate the understanding of our peers on how to communicate to the public what exactly each of our trades does. Uh, there's a five assumptions. Um, or misinformation in residential new construction that we want to try and address through this presentation. First one is uh, we often get calls to do FHA and VA inspections. Uh, we take a lot of time having to educate callers on why that falls underneath an appraiser. Uh, the second example is we get calls for an appraisal inspection. Uh, we have to try and decipher exactly what service the client is looking for. The third example is, um, you know, hey, code officials and home inspectors do the same thing. So why should clients hire a home inspector? Uh, the fourth example is builders provide a warranty. Why do I need an inspector? And the fifth example is uh, it's new construction. How much can really be incorrect or defective? Uh, with these examples in mind, let's take a look at some national stats on single family construction to give us a base understanding on public perception. Um, here are some highlights before we get into the details. According to a survey done by Clever Real Estate, 86% of buyers get uh, inspections on new construction. That is a lot higher that, uh, than I actually uh, thought possible. Um, in my experiences through home inspections, it's way, it's way less than 86%, but um, you know, national statistics and all. So 65% of those uh, that got inspections said they uncovered issues with their newly constructed home, with most of those problems being minor and did not delay closing. However, about a quarter, 24% of those that got uh, new construction home inspections say they did not pass the first home inspection. Uh, the study finds that nearly nine in 10 newly built homes require premature maintenance measures, even though no one had lived in the house before. Um, 1,000 people surveyed, out of 1,000 people surveyed, 32% would not recommend their builders or contractors to others, including 11% who would turn down financial incentive for referrals and 9% who wouldn't recommend their builder under any circumstance. 
Um, and another study completed in 2020 by the National Association of Home Builders found that 69% of builders use somewhere between 11 and 30 subcontractors to build the average single family home. That averages to 24 different subcontractors per home. 95% uh, of builders said that they always subcontract five different trades, uh, HVAC, electrical, plumbing, carpentry, and security systems. Uh, we'll talk more about this in detail later. Um, now get, you know, diving into um, the details here. Uh, building a new home requires dozens of decisions, so it's no surprise that more than one-third of buyers regret that the home building process sparked conflict with their family or partner. Beyond arguments over carpet and tile, um, the majority of regrets are directed at home builders and contractors, including uh, premature maintenance, construction delays, um, builder-contractor cut corners, costs rose during construction, overstretched their budget, unhappy with home quality, and builder had poor communication. Uh, the next is almost one-third of new home buyers would not recommend their builder to friends or family, and 11% would even turn down financial incentive to refer their builder. About one in 10 buyers, 9% would, uh, wouldn't recommend their builder under any circumstance. It's common for home builders to offer financial incentives to clients to refer family and friends, and 31% of respondents would be willing to participate. Although it's very common for buyers of existing homes to hire their own home inspector before closing, it's rarer with new construction. Um, about one in seven home buyers, 14% did not complete a home inspection. Among new home buyers who opted for an inspection, nearly two-thirds, 65% uncovered issues with their newly constructed homes. These issues ranged from minor problems that did not delay closing to failed inspections that ruined moving plans. With builders, subcontractors, and vendors operating at full capacity, racing to meet deadlines, it shouldn't be too surprising to learn that some details are missed during the home building process. What is surprising though, is that these missed details often include some crucial home components, including heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. HVAC systems account for 38% of those and safety related issues such as loose wiring, 36%. Uh, I put a slide in twice. Excuse me. <laughs> um, let's see. So uh, now that we have a little insight into public uh, perception of new construction, let's dive into what the construction trade groups are in fact responsible for. So let's start with uh, an appraiser. Um, as a home inspection company, we often get calls to do FHA and VA inspections, and we must educate the buyer and realtor that as of 2013, and Melissa, correct me if I'm wrong, it is the responsibility of the appraiser. So in order to guide your peers and the public, I have asked Melissa of Melissa Bond Quality Education to help us out. Melissa? Okay. Hi, Andy. Thank you. Um, what is the scope? of an appraiser. So what is it? What is an appraiser's role, I think would be a, um, a best question to answer. The appraiser's role is to determine the 
um, valuation component of the collateral. So basically all the appraiser is looking to do is determine the value of the property so that the client, who is of course the lender in many cases, in many cases, the client will know and understand what the collateral is. The client lending, if lender is involved, makes the decision on to loan or not to loan. Now, um, for uh, HUD, FHA, and USDA, Rural, rural Housing, um, in both cases, the appraiser is looking, if this is a loan that is for um, FHA financing or USDA Rural Housing financing, then the appraiser is there to observe what is readily observable defective conditions. Now, readily observable defective conditions means the appraiser is going to uh, view the property and do some minor checking of some of the uh, electrical components, appliances, um, the HVAC system, minor checking, okay, minor. Um, the appraiser is, um, Andy, I'm not sure when to move to the next slide because oh. I, I can't see what my next slide is to know oh. when it's time. So, I, I don't know what to tell you. Move to the next one is all I can say. <laughs> okay. There we go. Okay. This is an example of defective conditions that the appraiser is looking for. For again, FHA and USDA rural housing. Some evidence of continuing settlement. You know, there are um, many times in existing homes we see settlement but it's that evidence of continuing settlement, meaning there may be an issue that is ongoing, uh, leakage of any kind. I mean, the appraiser is looking under um, cabinet doors, under sinks. The appraiser is looking to see if there are any water leaks, if it is a raised foundation home on piers, or blocks, the appraiser is looking under the home to see if there's any plumbing that is uh, missing or plumbing that is not uh, secured and water is seeping. Uh, the appraiser is always look, also looking in um, the house itself, in the bathrooms to see if maybe when a toilet is flushed, if there's any leaking around the bottom of the toilet. Uh, we're also looking for decayed items, uh, perhaps some exposed wood that has not been uh, covered, as in painted, treated, um, you know, with a seal on it. Um, it is conducive to uh, decay. It's conducive to wood rot. And as we know here in the Deep South, the next one, termites, that's our biggest run in when you have wet wood. Um, we're looking for anything that's an environmental hazard. Now, let me talk about that for just a second. We are not environmentalists. We are not hazmat specialists. 
When we're looking for environmental hazards, this is the obvious, something obvious like perhaps a residential property that has eight cars and eight uh, abandoned cars in the driveway. Well, you may have some fluids from that that's seeping into the ground. Well, why is that a problem? Well, because if you also have a, an on-site water well in that same area, now that is seeping into the groundwater. So you can see where that leads into environmental hazards. Basically, the appraiser is looking for conditions that will affect the health and safety of the occupants or the collateral security or the structural soundness of a dwelling. Next. We are going to look at the utilities in existing properties, okay, as well as new constructions. We're looking to see, do they have future, uh, reasonable future utility? Do they look worn out? Do they look excessively damaged? Are they safe to operate? Now, an appraiser is required, FHA, USDA Rural Housing, to turn on a stove and see that it does, in fact, um, a burner will get hot, an oven will get hot. Now, do we check the temperature? No, we are only checking to see minimal functionality, okay? Does it function? Um, here, believe it or not, I have come across two houses in my 31 plus 32 years of appraising that a water heater was located on the outside of the subject property, exposed to the elements. Well, you can see right here, we're checking to see is, are those uh, mechanical components or plumbing components exposed to destructive elements? Well, of course that would have to be corrected. Now, do they have adequate capacity? Now, an appraiser does not check for capacity. An appraiser makes the simple assumption by observing, does it appear to have adequate capacity? Now, if I saw a five gallon water tank in you know, a, a, a water heater, water heating device, in a house, I would say that's not adequate capacity for a 1,500 square foot house. But if I see a 40 gallon, 50 gallon, 60 gallon tank, I'm assuming it's adequate capacity. So you need to understand, Go, I go back to the role of an appraiser, is to determine the value of that property for a collateralizing the loan for a lender. So, you know, we're looking for adequate capacity, but you got to understand in what context we're talking about that. Now we're looking at heating and cooling systems. We're looking at some, uh, you know, it has to have at least 50 degrees of heat in your living spaces or in a non-living space that might have some components that are subject to freezing. Um, you know, your heating system has to be safe to operate. 
it has to be um, able to operate without human intervention, meaning if you only have a fireplace, wood-burning fireplace in your property, that requires human intervention for someone to um, keep that going, to keep the house heated. So that's that's the kind of things that we're looking at. We're looking for a fuel that's readily obtainable that keeps that heating change, that heating device going. Change. Oh, sorry. Electrical systems. What we're looking for is frayed wiring, exposed wiring, things such as that. We're looking to make certain that a representative number of electrical switches function, representative number, a representative number of outlets function. Now, you may ask, what's a representative number? It depends on how many are in the room. Let's say you have six outlets in the room. If four, five function properly, as in if I plug in a little night light and it comes on, that's considered functioning. If I see a lamp plugged in, a television plugged in, and all of these devices are running, that's considered functioning, okay? We're going to look at the electrical panel, but we're only looking at it to see if the maybe a breaker box has a cover on it to make sure that there's nothing exposed. We're not testing capacity. We're not dismantling anything. We're not using tools for any of this. Next. Remember, we're still in FHA and VA. Now, we're moving now we're moving into the VA space. Okay, we just ended the FHA and the USDA. Now we're moving into VA lending. If the appraisers were uh, aware that there are any repairs that need to be needed, or if perhaps something does not meet local building code, that's what we're looking for. Now know this. VA is extremely different, polar opposites from FHA and USDA when it comes to checking, meaning turning on something. VA tells the appraiser, you need to simply observe and see if you see signs of malfunction. We are not required to turn on appliances. We are not required to turn on the, a central heating unit or a central air unit and see if they kick off when the desired temperature is met. These are not requirements of VA. Go ahead. We're really looking for anything that's gonna impair the safety of those occupants, the health issues of that property, and that there's structural soundness of the property, okay? Anything that impairs any of those three would be unacceptable. And that condition, whatever that condition is, would need to be corrected prior to VA guaranteeing that loan for the veteran. So anything that's going to compromise the structural integrity 
of that property would need to be corrected. Go ahead. The property does need to be free of hazards. And you can see in front of you, if it affects the health and safety of the occupants, must be corrected. Let's say the property doesn't have hot water. Well, that's, that's really a health issue. Sometimes you need that hot water. That's going to be required. Uh, the structural soundness, soundness. Let's just say that um, there's some continuing settlement that has perhaps caused some cracking in the drywall on the interior of the property, or you may have um, decking on, you know, on the outside of the property that has rotten wood. You know, this is structural soundness that's being impaired. So these are the things that VA says that's going to have to be corrected. Maybe you have some surfaces, fascia board, soffit that um, was not primed or painted. It's just exposed wood. That would have to be corrected. Go to the next one. Remember that on a VA property, even if it is detached sheds or other improvements that are there on that site, they need to meet those minimum property requirements, MPRs, those minimum property requirements of what we say, safe, sanitary, and structurally sound. If for any reason something violates any of those three, the appraiser is going to call it out. Now, the same with VA as we saw with FHA and USDA. Um, the appraiser is not a code inspector. The appraiser does not get on the roof of the house to check the surface or the actual roof material itself. The appraiser for all three of these is on the ground doing basically a visual observation. Go ahead. And this is your slide. All right. All right, Melissa. A um, couple of questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, I think you kind of covered this a little bit. Uh, but we often hear that uh, VHA and F uh, or FHA and VA appraisals can be troublesome. Um, I hear that a lot from real estate agents and, and, and that type of thing. Um, and so because a home inspection is often completed before the appraisal, is there anything that we can do to help make the transaction smoother for a client? Well, the first thing I want to say is um, FHA appraisals and VA appraisals and USDA appraisals and all other appraisals are not troublesome, okay? There are times when there are repair items that may need to be corrected and a real estate agent may refer to that as troublesome, but that does not mean the appraisal is troublesome. That means the property the subject property may be troublesome. So there's really not anything, Andy, that a home inspector can do other than their best job. Um, you do what is within your wheelhouse, what is within your um, area of expertise, and you identify 
the same way the appraiser is going to identify. Now, there may be times where you and I identify the exact same uh, issue on a property, but you're doing it an in-depth um, testing of different components on the house where the appraiser, we have to remember it's for collateralizing a loan. And our site visit is basically an, a, a visual observance. Awesome. Um, so, and then uh, I guess here's another question I had is, uh, on the appraisals that I've had on my properties, um, when the appraiser comes to the house, I happen to be home, you know, I, I know clients or sellers will always ask the appraiser, Hey, you know, can you tell me, or can you share with me, um, you know, your issues or your, uh, observations and we're always shut down. That's, um, that's a part of your process. You're not allowed to share that kind of information with the seller. Is that right? Okay. So here, here is, let's, let's, go to an understanding of what who an appraiser's client is. An appraiser has client confidentiality, okay? Just as the, the same as if uh, you and I both go to the same family practitioner, medical professional. If I go in, I have my visit, you go in right after me, you have your visit, you say, hey, I noticed my friend Melissa was here, you know, she had a sad face when she left. She's not dying, is she? They can't discuss that with you because you're not their client. You don't, they, you don't have that relationship. It's the exact same with an appraiser and their client. If my client is a lending institution, then the only person that I can discuss anything with is that lending institution. If my client is a um, Mr. John Doe that decided he just wants to know the value of his property, then my client, again, is the person I speak with. If Mr. John Doe says I'm the only person, there are no other intended users on this. Yes, I'm married, but Mrs. Doe, wasn't. she doesn't want to know anything about this, so you can't speak to her. You see, my client dictates to whom and my standard of practice, USPAP, which is our governing law, basically, says I can only speak to my client. And anyone that my client specifically says to me, you can discuss, and then they have to say the depth of what I can discuss. So oftentimes... I will do an appraisal and it may be a lending institution situation. And I have the lending institution's borrower who will call and say, you just did an appraisal for me on 123 Main Street. My answer is, hi, thank you for calling, but I did not perform an appraisal for you on 123 Main Street. Well, their answer would, of course, be logically, well, yes, you did. You know, uh, First Big Bank is my bank, and they ordered an appraisal. Absolutely. I did do an appraisal for First Big Bank. They are my client, but I cannot discuss anything with you. You're not my client. 
Well, what's the next thing the borrower says? But I paid for the appraisal. That is incorrect. My client pays me for the appraisal. Now, due to some um, lending practices and some banking policies, a bank will typically say whatever the cost is for that appraisal that the bank is paying for, they're going to pass that cost on to a borrower. So the borrower has a misconception that they paid for the appraisal. They only reimbursed a lending institution for a cost the lending institution had to procure their, their um, appraisal and consequently make a decision on a loan. Wow, that's good. That's really good information. I've, I never considered that. That's awesome. It's good to know. Okay. Well, um, if uh, is there anything else that you want to discuss or bring up about um, about appraisals? Well, the only thing that I can say in relation to um, a home inspection is oftentimes we are given a home inspection when we go out to do the appraisal. And I do read it. I read it thoroughly. But remember, when I'm reading that home inspection, I'm not crossing a line into saying, well, the home inspector called for this, so I'm just going to call for these repairs on my appraisal. Remember, your valuation expert is going to, if it's a VA loan, I'm going to look at VA guidelines on what the property, uh, the condition of the property should be. FHA, USDA Rural Housing, I'm going to look at the HUD guidance to see what those minimum requirements need to be. So we do not, even though we do read your home inspection, and it's not that we say, well, the home inspector shouldn't have called for that. It's not our call to simply incorporate everything that you said that needs to be corrected into our appraisal report. We only look for the items that we're required to look for. It doesn't negate your home inspection at all. Very good information. That's great to know. Well, that's kind of what this um, what this slide is um, representing. And this slide is going to come up several times through the rest of this presentation. But um, in order to kind of show side by side the differences between appraisers, code inspectors, and home inspectors, um, I asked this uh, group of um, I asked these questions, uh, you know, these topics, the roof coverings, flashings, gutters, and I asked um, Melissa, you know, to kind of give me a, a short um, uh, word as far as, you know, what they look at, what we look at as home inspectors, and then I asked 29 um, municipal code inspectors across the United States, um, and you can see their percentages there, and we'll, we'll dive into this deeper, but... Um, awesome, Melissa. This is great information. Thank you so much. Um, and feel free if you want to jump in on any anything I, I bring up next, um, by all means, please do. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So um, 
Well, uh, just to go over quickly, um, you know, if we if we look at the appraiser line here um, and we move um, from left to right across this um, uh, Excel spreadsheet, uh, kind of what she's what Melissa has already talked about is, she, you know, she's looking at the roof covering for the condition. She's looking at gutters to see if they're present and so on and so forth. And, and obviously you can look through this yourselves and, and kind of compare and contrast. But um, um Hopefully this gives us a really good uh, side by side and it's not necessarily apples to apples. It might be apples to oranges to, to uh, cucumbers or something like that, but um, um, gives you kind of some idea as far as the scope of what each of our trades uh, can do during the inspection. So to the next slide. Um, all right. <clears throat> As a home inspector and a building consultant, I have had many discussions with contractors, GCs, and builders um, about why code is not followed. Um, the conversation will often go like they, meaning code officials, don't know construction. They're just a bunch of pencil pushers imagining this stuff up to make our lives harder. That is a, uh, that is a comment that was made specifically to me, and all I did is transcribe it. And so, but as we all know, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Some of the people that help write these codes are often contractors, GCs, and builders, just like them, who are invested in their trade and have firsthand experience for the reasons behind a code requirement. We need to try and change contractors' perception of code to building a safe, reliable home instead of codes hurt my business. Uh, that's another phrase I hear all the time. Codes hurt my business. That's why I don't follow code. It's, um, it's you know, it, it's... Not for me. I know how to build homes. I've been building homes for 20 years. I don't need to do whatever to um, uh, just to <laughs> the code, code inspector happen. So who enforces code? Um, a code official, a municipal employee whose function is to enforce applicable building code, applicable building code to ensure a safe, reliable home. Code is only the bare minimum required to construct a safe, reliable home. Their evaluations, evaluations do not include installation instructions or industry standards. Examples of items or systems are that a code inspector generally does not evaluate is hardscape pitch, AC breaker size, water pressure, water leaks, hot and cold orientation, siding specific installation requirements, Attic ventilation details, roof covering installation, rock countertop support, and the you know the the list goes on and on. So, how are codes developed? Model codes aim to safeguard occupants from dangerous condi conditions by specifying fire safety and evacuation requirements, as well as uh, as well as the level of wind, rain hail, or other hazards that buildings should withstand. These codes, produced primarily by the International Code Council, incorporate existing consensus building standards developed by uh, professional organizations. Sorry about that. Um, and more on, on these professional organizations later, with expertise in particular relevant fields. Guidelines for code development call for balanced committee representation among interested parties like builders, trade groups, manufacturers, building officials, researchers, and many others, so that one group does not dominate the process. New versions of standards are published on a regular schedule, generally every three to six years, 
and are developed by a committee of dozens, sometimes hundreds of volunteer experts. Following the publication of the standard, the clock starts ticking for the next update. The associated committee will put out a call for proposed changes for the next version. Any member of the public or committee can put forth a proposal to alter a standard. Then once the call closes, the committee deliberates and votes on the proposals. A committee will issue draft standards for public comment after it votes on the proposals. The committee must address all comments from the public either by providing a technical explanation or agreeing to the modification. In this scan photo of just one page out of the NEC shows how diverse these committees can be. You can see by my arrows, there is the um, National Electrical Contractors Association, the uh, Independent Electrical Contractors, the DuPont Company, um, the American Chemistry Council, Travelers Insurance, and the International Association of Electrical Inspectors. Not only are the national committees diverse in their participation, but also your state and local municipality committees are equally as diverse in reviewing and updating code specific to each state. These just go to show how thoughtful the evaluations of codes are to building a safe, reliable home. These codes and this process is not a bunch of pencil pusher, unqualified, know-it-alls, as many contractors will have you believe. You can see in my state, which is Arkansas, and this is the old code. We have since updated this code, but um, I took the, um, uh, uh, the sheet out of the front of my book, and you can see in here that we have the Bentonville Fire Department, which is a local city here, Arkansas uh, Liquefied Petroleum Gas Board, um, Structural Engineers, um, Division of Public School Academic Facilities and Transportation. So you can just see all the different groups and all the different um, uh, experts that are included in uh, you know, making these decisions. It's not, um, you know, it's not just a bunch of people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, this diagram that was provided by One Click Code, um, who they are a, um, an, um, an estimation company for uh, roofers, uh, but the residential building code is considered the bare minimum to construct a safe, reliable home. Residential building codes are laws that are that are set minimum requirements developed nationwide, which is then modified for each state um, or authority having jurisdiction and enforced by local government. In an article produced by One Click Code, they did the nationwide research to help their customers provide estimates based on applicable code for their location. One click made this diagram to show how the different states handle code enforcement. In the light blue states, there is no state code. Every local municipality controls its own code standards. These states often cause a lot of confusion with contractors, specifically in metropolitan areas. In darker blue states like Arkansas, which is where I'm at, base code is adopted by the state and local amendments are put in place by municipalities. And then the green states is only state code no local municipal code. This shows, this diagram shows how vastly different construction practices can be from area to area and why it's more important than ever to have a well-educated, independent, non-biased local inspector to help guide you through the construction forest.
So now that we know a little bit of where code comes from and who enforces it and how much it can vary, well, we're about to talk about how much it can vary here. Um, I pulled 29 career municipal building inspectors across the United States, uh, what they look at when doing new construction code inspections. Now, a little side note is that I think some of these municipal inspectors, I did not dive deep into their qualifications, but I think some of these municipal inspectors are probably in an area that has inspectors specific for electric. Because as you can see in the um, uh, in this spreadsheet, that not all, which uh, under electrical panel, only 86% of the code inspectors replied that they do inspect the electrical panel. So I'm thinking maybe that's why we have um, a little bit of variance here, but so keep that in mind as we go through this. But um, the ones that really surprised me is that um, when we were going through this, the, um, well, the range, the oven, the stove, microwave, range hood, and dishwasher, when pulling the uh, municipal code inspectors, they said really the only thing they look for in that group is to make sure that the anti-tip bracket is installed on the range. Um, as we go further along, um, let's get, we see that they do, um, the rest of the electrical is around the same. Um, you know, 7% of them look at paint, which I was super surprised that, uh, that even, they even looked at the paint, um, water flow, temperature and water pressure, um, you know, 62% look at that, um, drain leaks, only 66% of code inspectors look for drain leaks, meaning that, you know, they're not running water in all of the faucets and checking for leaks and that type of deal. Uh, Plumbing fixtures, gas components, countertops and cabinetry. No code inspector looks at any of the countertops or cabinetry. Uh, only 79% look at framing. Again, that might be kind of along the electrical uh, side where uh, maybe some of the, the municipal inspectors don't do the framing in like a phase inspection type situation. Um, and let's see. Exhaust vents, 83%, and so on and so forth. Window installation and operations, 66%. Um, so, you know, looking over this in general, you can see that, not, first off, it's not consistent across the board. Um, and that, uh, and it kind of varies, you know. Um, some do, some don't. And that, that's just the environment that our uh, industry is in. Okay, um, so looking at this spreadsheet, I can understand how frustrating it can be for a builder. Um, inconsistencies with national, state, and local codes with a lot of new municipal inspectors may not, who may not be well-versed in code. Couple that with qualified, um, qualified tradespeople in short supply. We all know that blue-collar workers are hurting in, uh, in the United States right now for, um, well, they're not hurting, but the companies are hurting and, and the and subsequently, homeowners and buyers are hurting because they're having to deal with the shortage of, of, of qualified, um, qualified contractors. Um, so all of that can make an industry very volatile and hard to navigate, even for, even for experienced people. Where we as home inspectors can provide value to a new construction buyer is by inspecting systems and components to 
the manufacturer's installation instructions first. That's my first recommendation. And then industry standards second, and then code third. Although the InterNACHI SOP specifically states that we are not required to inspect to these standards, it is my opinion that in order for a client to find value in our services on a new build, you must educate yourself on those standards. If we were to only follow the standard SOP for new construction inspections, would not provide the client enough value to justify the cost of the inspection. That's my opinion. Make no mistake, home inspectors are not code inspectors. We all know that. But since manufacturers' installation instructions and industry standards are generally more stringent than code, our knowledge expectations are much higher. Manufacturers' installation instructions are especially important in that, if not followed, any available warranty will likely be voided. This includes roof shingles, water heaters, HVAC systems, ovens, and pretty much anything that is pre-made, which is nearly everything in the home. They all have installation instructions. Our focus on a new construction inspection is to be sure the client does not incur short or long-term preventable costs because one of the 24 subcontractors or contractors who worked on the home didn't cut one corner on the multitude of tasks that each of them do during the building process on the tight timeline and low budget that is required. <clears throat> so what does a builder and contractor need to build a home? Every state may have different requirements, but in Arkansas, and this is in, for in general, um, in Arkansas, you need a residential builder's license a residential builder's license is needed to build a single family residence if the cost of the project is more than $2,000, including, but not limited to, labor, material, um, unless other exceptions apply. A residential builder's license also allows you to perform remodeling, excuse me, on a single family residence. Mm, excuse me. Um, what you also need subcontractor registration certificates. So subcontractors of properly licensed contractors can work with a registration certificate instead of a full license. If there is a contract with a, prop, a properly licensed contractor, then that is a subcontractor. If there is a contract with the owner, written, verbal, or otherwise, that is considered the prime contractor, not the subcontractor. If the prime contractors do not have the appropriate commercial contractor's license, then the subcontractor would need a commercial license. They also need a $10,000 contractor surety bond. So why are contractor bonds required? Contractor bonds are required to protect consumers and the state from contractors and construction companies that fail to work according to local or state laws, i.e. code. From uh, each form uh, has its own specific terms for the kind of protection offered. Generally, they prohibit fraud and require contractors to complete projects as agreed upon for all parties. If a bonded contractor or construction company fails to fulfill their professional obligations as required by their bond, the issuing surety company will pay valid claims up to the full bond amount, which the licensed contractor must then reimburse. So why do builders use subcontractors instead of employees? Well, speed and liability. In our highly litigious society, using subcontractors puts another barrier in between a lawsuit and the builder. Many builder subcontractor contracts specify that the sub is solely responsible for any substandard workmanship during construction and, if issues arise, must repair at their own cost. 
subs accept that liability and the low budget in exchange for consistent work. This is often why co corners are cut so as to complete the work faster and or cheaper, usually using entry-level workers to make up for the low budget and quick turnaround time required of them. Here's a fun fact. $4,919 as of 2017 is how much Teresa Watson, PhD building science consultant, found to be the average amount set aside per house by 13 publicly traded home builders to cover the cost of warranty work. Add construction litigation, construction defect litigation, and that house, that per house reservation balloons to $22,278. So we have reviewed the oversight trades, but what exactly is the responsibility of a builder? Well, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not providing legal advice. This is only, everything that I've mentioned is only through my experience. Um, now my experience is through construction litigation investigations. Um, almost all of my clients are new construction buyers or remodeled home buyers. Even through these experiences, a builder warranty was not included. Now, we may not have builder warranties in my state, you might, um, but what has often been referenced in these cases that I'm a part of um, is in this quote here that you see from the construction law handbook. Implied obligations arise out of every contractual relationship. These obligations are every bit as real and enforceable as explicit contractual rights and duties. Thus, for example, implied in every contract is that each party will do nothing to interfere with the performance of the other. Furthermore, for example, it has often been held that there is an implied duty of good faith in, in every contractual undertaking. In the context of construction failure disputes, the implied obligation that arises from the from that arises the most is the contractor's implied duty to perform all work in a good and workmanlike manner. While certain contracts for construction will state this duty explicitly, even absent such a contract provision, it is almost universally recognized that implied in every contract for construction is the contractor's obligation to perform the contract scope of work in a good and workmanlike manner. If failure to do so results in construction failure, the contractor will be held accountable notwithstanding the implied nature of the obligation. In my experience, if I have had to file a claim because the builder does not appropriately address an issue, the claim would start ideally within five years of the work completed. <clears throat> well, actually it would start within the year of the work completed up to five years um, with a complaint including the overwhelming industry documentation um, to the respective trades licensing board and progressing to the insurance and the lawsuit from there. So most of the time, I have not had to go beyond contacting the responsible builder or contractor to have identified issues resolved, if stated correctly, with overwhelming documentable proof. We have been able to do this by taking ourselves, inspectors, out of the equation by referencing in our reports the governing bodies that put the standards in place. When I first started the inspection industry seven years ago, uh, I started out by making comments like, the roof underlayment is not over the drip edge flashing. Recommend a roofer to upgrade. Almost 100% of the time, I would say 100% of the time, the builder would state, the city code official said it's okay, or the licensed roofer said it's to code which then in turn makes me 
um, makes realtors and the clients start to question the validity of our reports. So now after approximately 5,000 inspections, our comments read like, roofing underlayment does not extend over the drip edge flashing. Per the manufacturer installation instruction, Owens Corning and the National Roofing Contractors Association requires specific configuration of the underlayment and may not be installed to and be and by not installing to standard may void your warranty. Premature moisture deterioration of the roof decking soffit and fascia is possible but was not observed. Uh, recommend monitoring and consulting a licensed roofer as needed. And we include a diagram. Almost always we try and include diagrams to make sure, obviously we wanna make sure you have use rights for this stuff um, and make sure it comes from a reputable organization, preferably the manufacturer. So on this slide, you can see in the top left-hand corner, this is the uh, diagram provided by Owens Corning on how exactly underlayment is supposed to lap um, under the uh, under the rake drip edge and over the fascia drip edge. Um, and then on the right-hand side is from CodeCheck showing the exact same thing, that the underlayment is over the drip edge and uh, on, the, on the fascia side and under the drip edge on the rake side. Um, so here, uh, as we just talked about, here's a real life example of why the installation instructions and standards should always be followed. I was hired by a third party, well, I was hired as a third party independent non-biased inspector to evaluate wind damage on a roof. The roof was three years old and the owner thought his insurance was just being jerks and not accepting his claim. After I investigated, we found that the roof installer did not nail inside the nail zone on the shingles stated in the installation instructions. The insurance company wouldn't cover the wind damage and neither would the manufacturer because the roof was not installed to the manufacturer's installation instructions. The client was out $10,000 uh, because the roof, well, and because the roofer was already out of business, obviously for good reason. He could have tried to sue the contractor, but couldn't afford the upfront cost of the lawyer and is just going to live with the roof damage until it starts to leak and patch as needed. This scenario is exactly why home inspectors are so important. I know of no other group that would call this defect out besides a home inspector, not a code inspector, and as Melissa stated, not an appraiser. When hired, our mission statement is to strive for the client to not incur short or long-term preventable costs. And if they do, then they have recourse using our inspection reports. In my experience, if there was ever a lawsuit between a client and a contractor, our reports will always be pulled into the suit. That is why even though 75% of new construction homes in my area are built with this underlayment in this configuration, and we get asked all the time, why do you always put this on your reports even though nobody ever does anything about it? It's because when our report is used to help a client with a claim or resolution, the report clearly shows that the installation instructions were not followed and neither was the industry standard. This is in turn uh, gives leverage to the client for resolution without having to get into messy claims and litigation. Because as you may have also experienced, if you have ever been part of an insurance lawsuit or warranty claim, many times they are rejected the first attempt. When the claim doesn't go away, then the company will investigate to see if instructions and standards were followed. If you read the fine print of a warranty or contract, you will often state 
that the that the instructions and standards, I'm sorry, <laughs> will often state that if the instructions and standards are not followed, that releases the company from their warranty. Even if the defect was from the manufacturer, it then usually is the burden of proof on the client to prove that they have a legitimate claim and is then a long drawn out and expensive court case. I have been witness for many clients and almost all of them were multi-year situations, multi-year litigation with very expensive upfront bills before any judgment relief. Who wants that? So for me, when I talk to a contractor and the words, it's to code comes out of their mouth, that immediately puts me on high alert. Now I will say, I am very versed and experienced in this. Um, if you are not, then I recommend that you start reading like crazy. Um, so while that statement might fly with non-trades people, it tells me that you are usually only building to minimum standard and you likely don't read code books. Um, I don't put anything in my reports that I have not um, validated. And so if I go to, if my report gets delivered out to somebody and the builder comes back and says, we're not going to do that, it's to code, I know immediately that uh, one, they don't read code books, and that two, um, if they do read a code book, they're only building to the minimum code standard. Um, so, but how do we prove to our clients and our referral partners that it's not a he said, she said situation? By saying to the client and the contractor, hey, it's here in this document, uh, documented, diagrammable example from your own trade group. It has nothing to do with me or my opinion. <clears throat> uh, then and only then has a new construction contractor taken us seriously. If you are in fact trying to protect your client and their investment from short and long-term costs, don't let a contractor brush you off. If necessary, call the state building inspector if a local inspector won't help you. But forewarning, be prepared to defend your observations based on industry data and not your opinion. Remember, we are in a very litigious society, so we need to make sure that every inspection report you write can stand on its own in a court of law. So do your research due diligence. So besides the, uh, so the, the, the National Roofing Contractors Association is the emblem on the bottom left, American Wood Council is the middle bottom, and the National Concrete Masonry Association is the far right. The National Roofing Contractors Association is, um, also has a statement for their standard for lapping underlayment. Another standard that I follow um, when inspecting for decks is the American Wood Co uh, American Wood Council using the DCA6 standard, um, which is basically just a shortened version for uh, deck standards that comes from um, national code. And then the National Concrete Masonry Association is the standard that uh, is used for um, um, adhered masonry units. So uh, like peel and stick, um, um, veneer, ma uh, masonry veneer. And so I reference those uh, standards all the time. There's lots of other standards um, like, uh, let's see here. Oh, I'm sorry, not, not for others. There are plenty of other standards, but other uh, uh, companies that I use for their diagrams, again, make sure you have use rights, uh, would be the Journal of Light Construction, Building Science Corporation, and there's lots of other ones. We also have you know, illustrated home, any of these guys. 
um, code check. Uh, just make sure that whatever diagram you're using is applicable to your area. All right. So why should, um, or why should we care so much about making sure like all the door hinge mounting hardware is installed on a new construction house? Um, because if you aim small, you miss small. Uh, that was an old uh, construction supervisor um, once told me that, and it stuck with me um, through all of my construction career. Um, and I've carried that over into uh, my inspection career. So we help people and communities grow in a sustainable way that allows everyone to live in a safe and beautiful place by lowering the cost of quality so that future generations can build on our progress. Um, so my wife at, is the one that actually shared this with me and it wasn't about construction, um, talking about the, uh, the quote on your, on your screen here. Um, she was actually talking about clothes, uh, that it was once explained to me that low cost products require mo more care. So I always bought my clothes from Walmart, especially my construction clothes. Um, but you know, they do tend to wear out pretty fast. And she explained to me that, you know, when you buy uh, low cost products, oftentimes it requires more care. And the same thing goes with building materials. Um, we are constantly trying to, or companies um, are constantly trying to find cheaper and faster ways to build things. But oftentimes that translates into needing um, more maintenance or more inspection, um, such as manufactured eye joists. I have found more delaminated eye joists due to water damage than I have um, uh, you know, timber uh, that has had water damage has not had near the amount of, of issues and replacement problems that um, uh, that manufactured hydros have. So in summary, uh, we believe that a, a home inspector's focus on a new construction inspection is to be sure the client does not incur short or long-term preventable costs. Although a lot of new construction home buyers are getting home inspections, there is still a great opportunity to grow that market by educating the public on limitations of ever-changing trades, products, and standards. Maybe as we continue to inform the public, they will require higher and higher standards of builders, thereby improving the overall construction experience and quality of homes while also making them cheaper. And that's all she wrote. Um, if you have any questions, um, I have the, my two emails are here at the top and Melissa's email is on the bottom. If uh, you want to discuss anything, I'm sure I probably misspoke on something <laughs> and please hold me accountable. Otherwise I won't get better.